Welcome to the Prima Donna podcast. I'm Nat Grant, a composer from Australia, interested in the connection between storytelling, memory and sound. In this series, I'm making what I've called sonic portraits, pictures of women who I consider to be my artistic elders, Australian artists from a range of disciplines who've had incredible careers and should be more well known. The portraits comprise interview recordings collaged with my own original music. For more info, check out primadonnapodcast.com. The first portrait is of a portrait painter, which I think is kind of fitting. Joyce McGraw was 92 when I interviewed her at her home in Melbourne in 2017. Joyce was the first arts librarian at the State Library of Victoria, where she worked for more than 40 years. She received an Order of Australia and a Churchill Fellowship, and is still exhibiting her paintings most recently at the Gallery of Terry Griffin, and you can hear Terry just about to leave as we start this interview. Do you mind if I record again? No, no. I might as well go back to the beginnings. When I was at school, uh, I was at boarding school, and my mother was a widow, and poor widow, and she uh, sent me to a boarding school, or I went to boarding school anyway, and uh, she was uh, keen for me to to learn anything I wanted to learn and so every extra that they had at the school for, you know, uh, she paid for me to do. So it was a lady called Miss Sullivan who taught art of speech. So then I used to be called on at the annual concerts to recite, you know. <laughs> We were asked what we'd like to do when we left school, and I said I'd like to be a librarian. And they said, oh, you can't be a librarian unless you've first uh, got a degree. Which I didn't have, of course. And so I gave up that idea. Well, I was working in the government department this is still during the war, and uh, the ABC announced a competition uh, for covering music and the arts, you know, and uh, what they had a section for radio acting. I decided I would enter this competition, a nationwide ABC competition. And so then I had to learn how to, um, how to do radio acting. That's right, I decided, I found that the only person who was teaching radio acting was a woman called Lorna Forbes. And she taught in the building in Burke Street, down over Elizabeth Street. And I started going to her for lessons. 
that's right. When I was going to her lessons in this building in Burke Street, I noticed there was a brass plate on the wall outside saying that A.D. and Amali Cahoon taught painting in that building. And so one day I got in the lift and went up to the top floor and knocked on the door of the Cahoons and I said, what do I have to do to come here? And Archie said, he gave me a list of paints and brushes and said, come on Wednesday night, get these materials and come on Wednesday night or something. So I did that, and that was the beginning of my learning to paint, according to his, uh, the Meldrum method that he taught. So that's how I started learning painting. And also then I entered this, this Stenford, and I got a, I got a prize. <laughs> and uh, it was a listener's prize, I think. And one of the prizes, one of the prizes was a, a employment with the ABC in a radio play. So the, the first commission I got from them had about two lines. <laughs> and uh, I went in there and uh, I found that the leading, they had one microphone in the middle of the room and the leading actors were around it, you know. And if you only had a few lines to say, you were somewhere at the back, you yeah. know. <laughs> and so I, you had to sort of fight your way in to say a few words. And so I decided I didn't want to be a radio actress. Soon after that, I, I went overseas and uh, I shared a cabin with a girl who worked in the library of the Department of, Department of Labour and National Service where I was working. And she was a librarian and she didn't have a degree. <laughs> so I decided when I came back, after a few years working in England, I decided to go straight to the State Library and knock on the door, which I did. I said, what do I have to do to come here? And they said, come tomorrow. <laughs> so I went to the State Library and worked there in the Lending Library. For 10 years I was there before I knew that there was, a there was an art library upstairs. It was closed to the public, but somebody had to sit there and give people readers tickets and whatnot. And I heard that the man who was the attendant who was sitting there when it was when it was during the hours when people could go there was going overseas. So I went to the lending library librarian, Mr. Perry, and I said to him, I believe that the art the art library upstairs is that 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 uh, they need somebody in the art library. Could I go there? And because he knew that I painted, the next day I was up there. It was like heaven on earth, you know, I just, I said, what do I have to do here? And they said, you just have to get the, so familiar with the books that you can find things for people because they had no separate catalogue over there. 
and uh, if people came in wanting something, you had to find it for them. So that seemed like heaven on earth too. So I started looking at the books. I climbed up, they had very, very tall ladders to the top shelves. Climbed up and started at the beginning and looked at every book. <laughs> it was great, you know, I was so excited. It was a wonderful uh, beginning to my uh, career as an art library and then. Then, but uh, only half the books on art were in that room because biographies of artists and other related things were up in the stacks, which was three floors up. I used to have to go up a spiral staircase to get them to look for things if people ask for something on a subject or about a particular artist. That was the situation. It was a too small room for the. And, and, uh, it was desirable that all the books came together. And one of the people who used to come into the library then was Professor Burke, who had not long been taken up the chair of fine arts at Melbourne University. And he used to come in and stand around, he always stood. We used to talk and then it came about that the, the um, Museum of Applied Science, which was in the front of the building and in the Queen's Hall, uh, they moved out of the building because the roof was leaking in the Queen's Hall and uh, they needed different space. So that meant that there was that something had to be done about the Queen's Hall. And so uh, I put in a suggestion for the trustees that it could be used for art, music and performing arts library and uh, the, all the books could be brought together. And so the, the chief librarian at the time was Mr. Uh, anyway, there was somebody who was more interested in science than other things, and he he wanted it to be a them to house all their science periodicals or something over there. So I didn't think I'd succeed, but uh, to my great surprise, they they agreed to for it to be an art, music and performing arts library. It took some several years to renovate the Queen's Hall because of the, the roof was leaking and all that. And we could hear, it was all, it was closed to everybody. It had curtains over the entrance and you could hear the workmen uh, working in there and they had radios going and that sort of thing. There were curtains across the entrance, and uh, little did we know, the, at that time too, it happened that uh, the government was, was employing uh, people from Italy and people who had skills with gold leaf, and uh, they did they did up the the Parliament building, I think, in Melbourne too, but. Uh, 
when we when we they finally opened the curtains and we went in, it was palatial, you know. It had, it had hanging chandeliers and gilding and stuff. It was beautiful. And uh, so, um, so we went in there and I was, and it was going to be art and music and performing arts. And the books that were in the, in the already in the art library had, were books that had been uh, purchased from uh, or donated by people from overseas. And for example, they were rare books that really had been donated to the gallery and they were housed because the gallery was in the same building too at that time. And uh, so there were all these really good books that are now in the rare books collection. But in those days they were in the art library, you see. So we moved over and I was asked to help design the, the equipment and fittings for the Queen's Hall. So we had very good music facilities and uh, everything was up to date, as you might say. And so it was art and it was the stacks at one end and, the, and in, the, in the main part it had a lot of books on open access and uh, music listening room and all sorts of things. So it was a great place and uh, very, very popular for a number of years. Now of course it's all gone, the stuff's all gone back to the stacks. Not, not as, as much, not nearly as interesting as it was. So that was a golden period from my point of view, for me. And I was there until I retired. Oh yes, I like painting portraits. Oh, James Mellon. Oh, he came the subject as well as the oral history As well as the... And you have a bit of a challenge. And there was something in the music that he kept on when the latest died. He painted these, I think, They came here to... Oh, I thought of who was doing Patsy Adam Smith, because that was the building of the studio. She was a writer of activity of the She interviewed a lot of Smith Max Meldrum studio in Kew, and so uh, where so she's gone for a while. Peggy Glanville Hicks was an Australian woman composer, the first woman to write operas. And uh, well, I think that's true, and she certainly was the first one who made a name for herself writing operas. And uh, I met her through an old friend, uh, yes, um, Kevin Macbeth, who had a record shop in Melbourne. Kevin had a radio program. It was about contemporary music. And uh, he knew Peggy Glanville Hicks, this Australian woman composer. And when I was going overseas then, later, I went out, it might have been, when I, you know, I got a Churchill Fellowship. That was when I was in the art library. I saw in the paper one day that, uh, that a, a, a policeman 
had been awarded the first Melbourne Churchill Fellowship and Mick Miller was his name and it told you in the newspaper that uh, about something about the Churchill Fellowships and it said that people who who uh, people who had some connection with the uh, the uh, you know return to return RSL and, and, and people who uh, that was one of the conditions. Something else made me think that I might be uh, eligible to apply. And so I, uh, I applied for Churchill Fellowship because at that time, and this is important to record, I think, uh, two books came to my name, two new books came into the art library that, uh, aroused my interest apart from the fact that there were by this time there were some periodicals published by the Art Library Society an international movement and one, one was in England and one was in America these societies but the one, so, uh, there was a book uh, by somebody called Chamberlain called Guide to Art Reference Books and another one by Lucas about, about American reference books. And I checked them against our holdings and I found that we had a lot of them, a lot of the books in, the, in them, but we were missing quite a few. So that happened and I bought it, uh, I got the Churchill Fellowship and I said I wanted to buy books and, and I wanted, well it's, there's a report anyway that's available. And I interviewed, I also had a letter from Kevin Macbeth introducing me to Peggy Glanville Hicks who was in, living in Athens for time. So my the round the world trip took ten months, I think. Use nowadays the Churchill Fellows only get a few months, but that was exceptional. You see, it was very fortunate for me because uh, it gave me time to really do a good job. I bought a tape recorder in in Hong Kong on the way. And then I went to I went to Monaco to see the the library had a, a very good collection of, of music by So anyway, I, I went from Monaco to Athens to look at, look for Peggy Glanville Hicks. I got out of the plane in Athens in the early hours of the morning, about half past five or something got into the town and uh, found that I couldn't read the street signs. Uh, I'd asked, I showed the letter I had for Peggy Glanville Hicks to one of the taxi drivers. He just shook his head. Then I went to the first of my appointments at a library in Athens. And uh, 
I was amazed at how one of them, they seemed to be fairly pretty rude to any lessons in Greece because this librarian who I'd written to beforehand said I was coming and he, uh, somebody brought him a cup of coffee while I was there. He didn't offer me one. <laughs> Although he knew I'd just come from the plane from Australia. Mm. Anyway, so then I asked him as I was going, going to the address of the next library I had to go to and I said, Where do, how do I get there? And he just pointed at the door and said, you turn to the left. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even, you know, exert himself a bit. So that was my experience. So then I decided I'd go, I, somebody had told me, I, I had wanted to buy a genuine icon. I was interested in icons, an icon painting. And uh, in Athens I went to, and somebody had told me before I left that the place where you could get them was in Athens in the flea market on a Sunday. So on the Sunday I went to the flea market and uh, I went to a place that was selling icons and when I got there I bought two icons and then I, as I was leaving uh, Peggy's, the letter to Peggy fell out of my handbag and I picked it up and showed it to the lady in the shop and I said, I don't suppose you know where this is. And she said, oh, yes, she said, I know her, she comes in here. I'll take you there after. So after the shop closed, I went with her to, to meet Peggy Glenn-Licks. And that was the beginning of a long and interesting friendship. Because we, because she uh, later came and stayed here and was looking for some place to buy in Australia. She wanted to come back to Australia. And so we... Uh, I showed her around various places and then she decided she was going to Sydney. She went to Sydney and after that uh, she used to ring me up a lot and we communicated and uh, I used to go up and stay with her from time to time. And I painted two portraits of her that were two of my best portraits, I think. And one of them's in the State Library in there. You know, they've got a gallery in the State Library and she's wearing red. She's got an owl on her hand. She, she was interested in owls. Anyway, so that's in there. And the other one's in the National Library, which I think was a good portrait too. She died, and, but the, uh, she, when she came back to Australia, it was not long after the, um, after the, Opera House was finished, and I had hoped, and uh, other people had hoped that she might, uh, that they might open the Opera House with a, one of her operas, because she'd had success in other countries. And uh, yeah, so um, they didn't do it. It was quite. Uh, she made friends with other composers in Sydney, Peter Sculthorpe and people like that. And when I, when I did go up to stay with her, she took me round to Peter Sculthorpe. And she also knew Yehudi Menor and people like that when they visited Australia and I met them. Yes, she was a character. She wanted me to come up and live with her, and I, but I couldn't do that because I was 
so we could visit the library. I still haven't, I still haven't produced one of her major operas in Australia. It's amazing. But the manuscripts are in the, oh, but after she died, there's a composer's house in, it's her house that they renovated and, uh, It's a lovely place, and it's got. I used to think they might hang one of the paintings on the wall there, but they didn't. But they did something that I don't know that she'd approved of. She had a piano that her mother had given her, a, a small grand piano, and they took the lid off the piano. And they've got that hanging on the wall. <laughs> well, what what about having a cup of tea or something? Yeah, do you want me to put the kettle in? Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you. You just have to press the button, make sure that there's water in it. Okay. Yeah. Find yourself a cup and mug yeah. or something. Do you want it in that cup? Yeah, tip this out. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, that'll do. I've got a spoon. Thank you, Jane. I decided that I, I didn't like um, men's suits to paint, you know, very dreary. And I remembering the uh, some of the great artists who painted, I uh, can't think of any at the moment, but there's one particular artist, an earlier period, an Italian artist, who painted uh, religious subjects. They had... Uh, rather interesting vestments or clothes. And so I decided, oh, and I had a young cousin who was going to Monash University. The Maddox College, which is a Catholic college at, at Monash. This young cousin was going there and I met the priest, the priest who was the master and I decided that uh, he had just, that outfit was really paintable, you know. And I painted this portrait of, I can't think of his name now, Father. Anyway, it won a, it won a, uh, I entered it at the Bale Prize, which was, they had a section for portraits, a section for other things. And I won the Bale Prize for portrait with that painting of, Father Knowles was his name. So after that, I started getting commissions from the Dominicans at Monash from the, uh, to paint all the other masters that had been since they set up. So I painted about four or five of those. But then they, then the, they gave up, the Dominicans gave up uh, being masters of Maddox College, so now I have lay people. I've painted a few of other doctors from the Children's Hospital since then. Apart from that, I haven't been doing. Now I'm 92, I'm not painting any, I'm just trying to finish off one of them. <laughs> there. How long would you spend with someone if you're painting their portrait? Painting? Yeah. Oh, I have about uh, five or six sittings. 
of two hours each. Having a few yes. chatting with you when you came. So you get to know people. Oh, you do. Yeah. Yes, it's rather good. Mm. That way. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, when I, I learned the, the, the method that uh, Archie Cahoon taught me was called the Meldrum method. It was a sort of supposed to be a scientific approach to painting. And uh, when I was in the library, a man came down from Sydney or from Queensland, I think he was, an artist, and he wanted to uh, to know more about the Meldrum fan, Meldrum, Max Meldrum. And so I said, oh, you could go and visit his uh, daughters. They live in Kew. And I gave him the address. And he went out to visit them. And he came back a day or two later and he said, to thank me for introducing me to the Meldrums, and said that the studio was vacant. So I, my mother had died a year or two earlier and, and so I decided to ring the Meldrums and ask them could I rent the studio because every week I was going home to Oakley where I lived and uh, having to mow the lawns and do things. <laughs> so I, uh, I rang the Meldrums and asked could I uh, rent the studio and they they said uh, to come and see them. And I went to see them and I was, it was in a very, the, the, the block of land and the trees around the house were very tall and it was all very rather dark getting around to the studio. And I was a little bit nervous of it, but I did go in and I asked them, could I rent it? And they said, the first, and this was surprising because Meldon was an agnostic by the way. Although, and the, uh, so they said, are you a Catholic? And I said, yes, does that matter? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, they asked me to come and they said I could use the studio. So that was really marvellous because it was a great studio. It was the best studio in Australia, private studio. And it was built to his designs by him and his students. And, uh, so I had very happy times in there, and I painted a lot. I, I painted Father Knowles, the one I won the prize with, in that studio. I, I tried to put the, something that indicated their occupation in the pictures, and Father Knowles was, uh, he was interested in, in uh, icons, and somehow or another I had an icon in the background <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so then on I always included something that uh, indicated their special interest. Oh, that's right. I, I, once I retired and I came here, I was still going over to the studio, still renting the studio in Kew for a number of years. And then I found I got, because I'd never taken any long service leave at the library, I got a lump sum of $40,000 or something, long service leave. 
And so I decided to use that to build a studio. So I did that, I went and started with that and built the studio, basing it on the, you know, the ideas that I got from the Weldon one. And that's the studio, and the studio now is, it's very useful for me to, well, I built it so that it had accommodation it, was, it has accommodation upstairs, you know, it's bedroom and toilet and shower and everything. So that I thought that if ever I wanted to, I could live in there and rent the house. But as it happens, it's, uh, I've been able to rent it out ever since I needed to, and uh, with people who were very helpful to me. Some of them went to, I gave all the collection of paintings I had by other artists to Mildura. So they've got an art gallery called the Joyce McGrath Gallery in Mildura. <laughs> well, I don't mind, it's a lovely, it's a, I love Mildura. And I've got a goddaughter now who's, I've got 10 godchildren and one of the girls is a Bernadette, she's the daughter of a doctor who is at the Children's Hospital. She's a, just finished training for work with the children. Uh, with children. She, she did some of her training up at Mildura and likes it. It's a nice place, I've never been there. Because so, apart from learning elocution and I learned piano and violin and singing and yeah. violin at school. I'm a great believer in people learning singing, even if they haven't got good voices. Very good for your health. And so I've been interested in opera, of course, and I'm, Peggy, Anthony and I have subscribed to the opera ever since, uh, you know, for many years since I, I, went, I know I was there with uh, Joan Sutherland and, and uh, Pavarotti came out as he was one of the young singers then. Because I've also got stuff about uh, about Maggie Fitzgibbon, who was a she was a she is a like you know um, what do they call it? <laughs> Not light opera. But Maggie's still going, Maggie Fitzgibbon, I was at school with her. She had a beautiful voice. And uh, I'm sorry that once when I went to stay with her, up, uh, she had a property after she had been singing overseas and made a lot of money. She bought a property up in the Murray somewhere. And uh, I used to go up and stay with her a bit. And I made a recording, she used to sometimes sometimes uh, go out and sing to the cows or something, you know, sing to the animals. And uh, I made a videotape once of her singing to the animals and somehow or another I lost it. We're both very sorry about that. She's still alive. She lives up to She got an order of Australia on the same day as I did. We both went to, we both went to the, government house that day and I saw Maggie again. She always had this very big 
voice that soared above the rest, you know. You, you know the book that uh, you probably got? Plaster and paint. The pink book, pink back. Oh no, I can see it. It's over here on the third shelf down. And it's there, yeah, that. But I need it back again because it's the only copy I've got. Jan Harper, she. Uh, Is that you? That's a self-portrait, yeah, that's my doctor, Dr Cahoon, he was the first one of the children's hospital. And she wrote it because uh, uh, she, she and her husband had a block of land down at Kernet, I think, down on the way to Gippsland, Glen Forbes, where my family came from. And uh, in doing her research, for that, for the other families who lived in the district. She came across my relations. And then she, it led her to me and uh, then I started. To, and then she found that, that uh, she was related to Dr. Cahoon, that I was my doctor. Yeah. And so she decided to write the book, Double Biography of the Children. Yeah. He was the man, he was like God to us. Because he was, there was only we were isolated down there in Mount Eliza, the children, and uh, he only came every now and again. But uh, he, you know, we were very much in awe of Dr. Cahoon. And actually, what originally when I first started, when my when I first com complained about a pain in my hip when I was in the up at Redcliffe in Mildura, near Mildura as a child. Uh, they brought me down to the children's hospital to try and find out what was wrong with me. Nobody could find out what was wrong with me. But they put me into the children's hospital for a while and put a, a weight on my, a sandbag on my leg and it was, I was sort of in bed there. And my father, gave me a what his watch to mine because he knew I'd be worried on my own. And all, all I knew what to do was I kept winding it until it wouldn't <laughs> it broke and stopped. Then my father said to my mother, they're not doing anything for her there, bring her home. So mum, not knowing any better, she just went and took me out of the bed and brought me home. Uh, sometime later, when my I still hadn't, they still hadn't found anything to help me. My father said to uh, brought me and told my mother to bring me down to the children's hospital again. He said they won't know where, you know. So we came down to the children's hospital, and I was shown into Doctor Cahoon's room, and he said, "Oh, here's a little girl from the bush." So then I, he then, by then, or soon after, he had been appointed to um, to take charge of a hospital down at Mount Eliza that was built uh, to house polio and TB patients. This is 1934 or something. 
and uh, so I, I was taken from the children's hospital in an ambulance down there and I got down there and was put in a cot and left alone and I started screaming because I didn't know if my mother knew where I was. And I just screamed and screamed and screamed until I was exhausted. And then that that gave me that that has been my attitude ever since. That if you if you can't do it, do what you can and if you can't do any more just uh, accept it. <laughs> I had to accept that there was nothing more I could do. We only allowed visitors once a month. So you you sort of lost touch with your uh, family a bit. And my mother was the, my mother, my father was in the, the uh, military hospital in Caulfield. He had TB in the lungs. So my mother used to have to spend a lot of time visiting him and me. But she was only allowed to visit me once a month, so. And they only came down to see me once while I was there, together. And, uh, I remember them asking me, one was on each side of the bed, and they asked me which one did I love the most. Well, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I said both the same or something. But I can remember being asked that and having seen them at each side of the bed. My father used to write me letters and draw little stick figures in the letters. And once he, uh, he hired a boat because you could see from the ward where I was, you could see the sea. We hired a boat and rode around outside, but I wouldn't know it was him, you know. I think I learned to appreciate colour a bit from uh, being down there, because uh, we used to be uh, pushed from the, under a, a balcony out into an open space to be in the sun, that was part of the treatment. We appreciated sunsets and all sorts of things like that, you know, I remember. And we also used to have occasional drawing of lessons. Somebody came around the wards for half a day and taught you drawing or whatever. I remember the first time I was asked to, uh, to draw was, uh, was pastel. They gave me a, one of those little snowflakes or snowdrops that have green spots around them. And I thought it was the most beautiful flower I'd ever seen. <laughs> so I, anyway, I remember having to draw this, that in pastel and how nice it was. Then we had to do, another thing we had to do as a craft exercise was to uh, stick the front and back, uh, draw the front and back of a cow and stick it on a cotton reel, you know. One. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember that exercise. Then we had school for half a day. Uh, somebody used to come around and we used to have the readers that the kids had at the ordinary school. So we learned about, uh, oh, there, was a, there was a story in one of the readers called, what was it now? The Hobbyars. Very scary story. <laughs> well, I never forgot that, The Hobbyars. It was illustrated with a 
a rather frightening illustration too. There was space between you and the beds on either side. And occasionally we used to um, hold hands and pull the beds together and have a little concert at night, put a blanket over the top. And one night I remember I was singing a song called, which was popular at the time, called The Girl in the Little Green Hat. The Girl in the Little Green Hat. Anyway, I was singing The Girl in the Little Green Hat and suddenly the blanket was pulled away and there was Dr. Cahoon. (laughs) I was pretty shocked by that. I can remember that. So we had to get back to our places and the girl in the bed next to me. Thanks for listening to the Prima Donna podcast. For more information or to subscribe for future episodes, visit primadonnapodcast.com.